I want to talk to you about the Christmas story. And I think too frequently we kind of limit the idea of the Christmas story to a couple of days here in December. Um, we work up to it. We get through it. Somewhere around January 2nd or 3rd, we kind of settle down. Um, somewhere around the 15th or the 20th, we get the bills. And all of a sudden, we're in the middle of winter. Uh, there's snow on the ground. I know some of you like that. I'll never get it. I don't understand that. <laughs> and and we're, we're, we're kind of, yeah. But I want, I want to talk to you about the, the real Christmas story. Because the real Christmas story doesn't start in December. It doesn't start at Thanksgiving, Black Friday, uh, or you want to push it further, I guess we're kind of start celebrating Christmas somewhere around Halloween. Uh, it, it starts before the beginning of time. It didn't happen in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. It was part of God's plan, part of of his sovereign plan for the redemption of mankind, for his glory from the found, before the foundations of the earth. And it weaves its way through all of history. And I hope to show you how it weaves its way into our hearts this morning and all the way through the rest of eternity. So it's a story of what we would theologically called the incarnation. God become flesh and walking among us, living with us, touching us, healing us, healing us in the area that we need healing so desperately in the area of the consequences of our sins. Story of God redeeming his children. Story of love and grace and mercy. Well, the Bible... The Bible tells that story. Now, those of you who have been following along with my daily commentary on the Bible readings know that, that when we read the Bible, you know, it's, it's, it's good to read the Bible to find out about yourself. That, that's a good thing. But i got to tell you something. That's, that's, that's right up there on the surface of everything. When we begin reading the Bible to find out about God, to find out about His character and nature, to find out how He relates to His creation, and how he sits in eternity. That's when we start going deep. The Bible tells the story of God. And his redemption plan for mankind. Line by line, chapter by chapter, book by book. It's about God. And each book teaches us something about the character and nature of God. Every book is in there for a reason. Every book is there to to progressively roll out his plan of redemption for mankind. So I'm going to preach through every book this morning. And I hope we'll be done by the time when the Christmas Eve service starts. I just want you to have that vision, though, that every book in the Bible is a record of God's movements and his actions uh, throughout his creation. So let, let's start at the beginning, Genesis. Genesis. We're going to look at the Old Testament this morning. Tomorrow, we'll take a look at the New Testament. We're going to look at the Old Testament and how it leads up to that silent night in Bethlehem. And then tomorrow, we'll look at the impact that that silent night has had on the church and, and on the, the course of, of history. So, let's start with Genesis. God speaks everything into creation. Now, 
Now, we know that. We're familiar with that. We, 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 we've heard it before, but I just want you to stop and think about that for a second. God's words form the universe. They put the stars in their place. They put the planets in their place. They form the earth just by speaking. Everything that we see around us comes into existence. It's an incredible supernatural miracle. He, he makes the land. He makes the seas. He makes the skies. He puts uh, a garden in the middle of it all and makes a man and puts a man in the garden, puts a woman with him and says, Okay, well, here, look, I'll give you everything you need. Just don't touch these two trees. And, of course, they go out and touch the trees. And so we see the character and nature of man. And it's fallen. Sin comes into the world. And even in the middle of that sin, there, there are consequences, to be sure. God gathers the man and the woman and the serpent together in chapter 3 of Genesis and says, look, there are consequences for what you did. But there's hope. There's what is called the proto-evangelion, okay? The, the prototypical gospel in Genesis 3.15. When he says to the servant, he has, you, there will be enmity between you and the offspring of the woman. Now, you have to understand what was happening there because the woman had no children. They're standing there before God about to receive judgment. And God says, oh no, there's a future for you. You're going to have children. There's going to be enmity between your children and this serpent right here. And he says to the serpent, they will bruise you on the head. He will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. And literally what he says is there'll come a time when somebody that comes out of this woman, you will injure. But it will be on the heel and his injury to you will be devastating. So there's hope. In the middle of this despair, he puts them out of the garden. He gives them clothing. They've got to fight now. They've got to make their food last and so on and so forth. And things kind of go downhill from there. I mean, they, they, they're true to their character and nature. And it gets so bad that God says, well, I'm going to reboot. But I made a promise that there would be offspring of that woman. So I'm going to reboot around one righteous man, one solitary man, a guy named Noah. He floods the world. Noah and his family survive. They begin to repopulate the world. Noah's, Noah's a great guy. He's righteous by the, the, the lips of God himself. But what does he do? He gets drunk right afterwards. Noah's got his flaws. He's only as righteous as a human being can be. But out of, out of that repopulation, God chooses another solitary man, Abram. And he says, you know what, Abram? You're pretty old. So's your wife. 90 years old. I'm going to make you the father of nations. I'm going to be your God. And they're going to be my people. And you will bless the entire world. And he, and he begins to do that. Out of Abraham comes Isaac. God asks Abraham to, to uh, sacrifice Isaac. Where, where does he ask him to sacrifice it? You know, Mount Moriah. You know where Mount Moriah is? 
Jerusalem. There was no Jerusalem there. But the very first thing we see is that Mount Moriah is a place of sacrifice. God's working through solitary men. He works through sacrifice. Isaac is spared. From Isaac comes Jacob. Jacob has 12 children. Jacob becomes who? He becomes Israel. He becomes God's chosen people. God chose Abraham. And through Abraham, he chose Jacob. And through Jacob, he he begins to foster Israel. Jacob has a son named Joseph. Joseph goes to Egypt. And the next thing we know, God's people are all in Egypt, in captivity in Egypt. And God brings them out via what? But by, via one solitary man, a man named Moses. This is in the book of Exodus. So he brings them out of Egypt via this solitary man, and he gives them the law. Except nobody can live up to the law. Nobody can measure up to the law. The law is not there to condemn man. The law is there to portray the character and nature of God. And remind man that he's not holy. That he needs a loving God in order to survive. He gives them the sacrifice. And in the sacrifice we see that the shedding of blood must occur in order for the atonement of sins to occur. He teaches them how to worship them, worship him by his guidelines. He gives them the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is a holy of holies. There's only one way to approach God through the holy of holies. Man doesn't get to make up how he worships God. He doesn't get to make up how he approaches God. It happens by God's guidelines. It happens by his dictates, by his commandments. And he takes them to the promised land. He teaches them on the way. He teaches them how to live together, how to worship, how to conduct the priesthood. This is the book of Leviticus. Notice, God sets the guidelines, not according to man's preferences. He didn't say, well, what kind of music do you like? He said, do you want casual worship or do you want formal? God says, here's how you do it. There's parameters in there. There's some, some wiggle room in the guidelines. It's all okay as long as God is the center of it. Jesus is elevated in it. His children do not get to make up how they approach God. We see that again in Leviticus. So, at the end of Leviticus, uh, it's getting time for them to get ready to, to battle for the promised land. God orders them to take all these censuses. And this is in the book of Numbers. Now listen, the censuses aren't there to find out how big they are. Yeah, you got to put it all together because you look at numbers and the numbers look huge, don't they? But once they get into promised land, you find out the numbers are small. They're about to go up against overwhelming forces. He has them count, not to see how big they are, but to remind them of how small they are. So that when the victory comes, they have no choice but to give the glory to God. They don't have enough people to have victory. They're led into, well, they're near the border of the promised land. Just before they enter, God reinforces the law. Book of Deuteronomy. He goes over the terms of the covenant, renews it. And 
In Deuteronomy, we find out when, we, when we're, we're standing uh, between those mountains of, of Ebal and, and Gerizim that there are blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And we meet a man named Joshua. And in Joshua, in his book, a solitary man leads them into the promised land. And, and what we learn out of Joshua, we went through it earlier this year, is that those who oppose God, those who reject God, those who fight against God and his people are going to come to a very bloody, horrific end. God continues to teach us. In the book of Judges, they settle into the land. They divide it up. Everything's been divided amongst the 12 tribes in Joshua. They settle in, and, and a pattern emerges, a pattern that we need to pay close attention to. Because they received the blessing. They got the blessing of the land. Then Israel does evil. And after they do evil, they suffer the consequences. They're conquered. When they're conquered, they cry out. And when they cry out with contrite hearts, when they, they make a sincere repentance to God and ask for his help, God sends a deliverer. And it is always a solitary man that will point them back towards their Father in heaven. Now, during the time of Judges, we learn another lesson in the book of Ruth where we see the prospect of a kinsman redeemer. We find out that only somebody from the family can restore somebody or bring somebody into the faith. We also find out that a non-Jew can be part of the faith. But the important thing that we find out is that it's not heritage that saves, it's a personal relationship. Did you catch that? It's a personal relationship between Boaz and Ruth's family that brings Ruth into the faith, that saves Ruth. First and second Samuel finds us with Israel wanting a king, a king just like the other countries have. But we also meet Samuel. God sends a solitary man that we're going to lead them in God's wisdom. Now, they get Saul as a king, and Saul is exactly what they wanted a leader like the rest of the world has, and sadly, the rest of the world's leaders are flawed. Saul is fatally flawed. Then God picks a king. David. David is flawed as well. But you know what? David is blessed by God. Despite his flaws, not because of them. David leads to Solomon, Solomon's even more blessed, but ultimately Solomon is even more flawed. We see the tabernacle that they received back in, in Exodus now becomes a temple, and the temple is where? Mount Moriah. Huh. Where that sacrifice was supposed to take place. Then first and second kings, we see a succession of kings, some of them are good, a lot of them are bad, and they seem to get worse as we go through kings. And the pattern that we saw earlier begins to repeat itself. God blesses, Israel does evil, they cry out, God sends a deliverer in the form of a solitary man, usually in, in kings in the form of a good king that turns them back towards God. 
Meanwhile, the nation splits into two kingdoms. Now they're, they're fighting amongst themselves. So you can see things are sliding downhill. The northern kingdom is Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. Israel turns its back on God. And they're going to have trouble for that. Judah's hanging on by a thread. And what we see is that what is necessary in order to walk in God's greater blessing is a disciplined, committed relationship to Him. And see, that's what's beginning to slip away, is the discipline and the commitment they make to their father. They're turning to other gods. These lessons are repeated in more detail in First and Second Chronicles, uh, which goes a little further in establishing the rules and the parameters of the covenant, and, and again, we find out that obedience garners blessing. Disobedience garners trials, and suffering, hardship. And in it all, we see, if we read this carefully, we see God's patience, don't we? I mean, these people have been bumping up against God, doing the things that he's told them not to do, disobeying him, turn their back on him, and God is patient with them. We also see an incredible amount of God's grace. I mean, he flooded the entire world because they were rebellious. Yet when his chosen people are rebellious, he exhibits grace. One of the overarching themes of the Old Testament, Kings and Chronicles, the history of Israel, are saturated with God's grace as he deals with an increasingly rebellious people. They keep getting worse and worse. Then, we find the book of Ezra. Now, chronologically, Ezra doesn't line up with where we are, but you got to take a look at it, because I believe that these books are ordered by the Holy Spirit. I can't substantiate that. It's just my idea. But I believe that, they're, that the Holy Spirit had something to do with how they're ordered in the Bible. So in the middle of this darkness, in the middle of a hopeless time, we find Ezra. Now, Ezra's a little bit later, but... Ezra tells us of a rebirth, not of an individual, but of a nation, of Israel, with a theme of returning, rebuilding, and reforming. And again, it's not chronological, but it is a ray of hope in a hopeless time. It's a promise that the dark hours will come to an end. Did you hear that? Ezra's a promise that the darkness will end, that there will be light. Hand in hand with Ezra comes Nehemiah, another series of lessons of practical living after this rebirth. We see not just the promise of new life, but a way to live in a manner that honors God. Nehemiah's got a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other hand. And we learn life lessons from Ezra and Nehemiah. Then we hear the story of another righteous man. So you got to see the hope that Ezra and Nehemiah bring, and you got to see the hope that the story of Job brings. Because Job asks two major questions. And the first question is early in the book of Job, can a righteous man suffer? It's a very important question. It will have impact 2,000 years after Job is on the scene. Can a righteous man suffer? That question is answered somewhere in chapter 2, where Job suffers horrifically. And again, Job, like Noah, is named righteous by God. 
The second question that Job answered, and he takes the rest of the book to answer it, is will a man accept good from God and not trials and not suffering? Job does. In Job, we see a reconciliation between God's goodness and the trials and and suffering of living in a fallen world. Ultimately, God's goodness triumphs. But listen, we know that, right? We know Jesus triumphs. But what we see in Job is that his goodness triumphs not just in eternity, but in Job's life. That's how God works, isn't it? Gives us victory in our lives. Job is righteous at the beginning of the book. He's righteous at the end of the book. But through the process of 42 chapters, Job is refined. He's sanctified. Now, Job's story of goodness and omnipotence is followed by a series of poems, songs, and hymns. What a time to rejoice, amen? Psalms. Psalms can be broken down into five volumes. There's a number of different ways to break it down. I like this one because it's roughly parallel to the career of David the king. Volume one tells of the king identified. We see him, but he's struggling. David's struggling with Saul. He's king long before he assumes the throne. Volume two shows the king on his throne. Volume three depicts the king in exile. Follow this. Volume four tells of the king's return. Do you see any parallels with Jesus Christ there? And volume 5 worships the king. So just as Job and Psalms show God's sovereignty and God's omnipotence and that he has a sovereign plan that will not be thwarted either by David's weaknesses or by the enemies of David, Proverbs again tells us how to live in a fallen world. Proverbs is filled with hints and guidelines showing us how to cope with our own flaws, how to deal with our own enemies, how to deal with temptation. And the truth found in Proverbs, when we read Proverbs, we've got to be very careful with it because the truths we find in there are not commandments. They're not promises. We can't read everything and promise, say, well, if I do this, then God's going to do this. They're just wise guidelines. We would call them today, Proverbs is street smarts. If you do this, that's dumb. It's going to hurt. (laughs) If you do this, that's good. You're probably not going to hurt, but you might hurt anyway. We want to walk in God's best blessings. We follow the guidelines in Proverbs. Proverbs is evidence, listen to this, that God will not leave us to our own devices. He'll guide us and counsel us. After the wisdom of Proverbs, we, in, in Ecclesiastes, we hear that the greatest satisfaction in life comes from living for and fearing God. I mean, everything comes together in Ecclesiastes in the last couple lines. Solomon teaches us that our decisions can make life a joy or they can bring misery. Without making God our priority, we'll struggle. And when we, when we make that decision 
to live in the fear and reverence of God. He gives us instructions on how to love. Song of Solomon. Think about this. Song of Solomon tells us to love passionately. Tells us to love freely and without reservation. Why? Because that's how God loves us. Passionate, freely, and without reservation. There are no conditions on God's love for us. That's what we see in this relationship between these two people in Song of Solomon. You can make a lot of other things of it, but it's a picture of God's love. It's a picture of how we should love Him. Now, all these teachings are for the benefit of God's people. And back then, they needed it, didn't they? We do too. God graciously allows them to stumble, but he remains faithful. So faithful that he's given them explicit instructions on how to live in a manner worthy of being called his children. He tells them how to do it. And what do they do? (laughs) They don't listen. Getting back into the, the, the timeline... Trouble's on the way. The kingdoms are still split in two. Israel's still sliding further away from God. Judah's not far behind. And so God, instead of smiting everybody, instead of rebooting again, he sends prophets. Solitary men to warn them about what is to happen. And first, since it's... It's in such a precarious position. He sends prophets to Israel. By his grace, he sends prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel. Hosea, Amos, and Jonah. And they warn against turning away from God. They even speak of the captivity that's coming and the suffering that they're going to go through. But Israel turns a deaf ear. Chooses not to listen. Carried away by the Assyrians. Their land becomes occupied by people that are not of the faith. Prophets are sent to Judah, who's struggling. Not as mightily, but they're struggling as well. And they are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Michael, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. What a group of guys. And they bear the same warning that the prophets to the northern kingdom have had. Do you see God's patience? Do you see his love? Do you see the grace he has for his people? His forgiveness? His faithfulness? He's not giving up on them. He's still speaking truth to them. If you don't see it in the prophets that he sends, then you can see it in the message that they bring. Because they also speak of a coming time of captivity. But they speak beyond that time. They speak of restoration, renewal, and forgiveness, particularly Isaiah. We heard a little bit earlier from Pastor Scott. Isaiah prophesies of the coming of the Messiah, the one who's going to redeem them. All the prophets point in some way towards the Messiah, but Isaiah is specific. In the early chapters of Isaiah, he says that the the Messiah is going to be born of a virgin. 700 years before it happens. And that he'll be called Emmanuel. God is with us. In chapters 58 to 60 of Isaiah, the description of the suffering Messiah is explicit. Read it. 
Take a look at the last half of 58, first half of 59 later on this afternoon. Micah, Micah says that he's going to come from Bethlehem 600 years before it happens. And so Judah goes, oh, let's, let's mend our ways. Let, let's do what, what he's telling us to do, right? No. No. They fail to listen as well. They try, maybe harder than Israel, the northern kingdom did. But eventually, Judah is carried off by the Babylonians due to their own pride and arrogance. But there's, once they're carried away, there's this outpouring of grief. And, and if you read these things carefully, this appears in Lamentations. It's not just grief over being taken captive but they've suffered this breathtaking shock of the magnitude of God's wrath they've seen it and they recognize his holiness and perfection and their lack of it so what we hear coming out of Judah is repentance and we see in Lamentations the appropriate response to sin is repentance. And we've got to think about these with fresh minds because these are new lessons for these people. We look back and we go, duh. Maybe some of them were saying the same thing. So upon this contrite, heartfelt repentance of lamentations, we see restoration. God sends more prophets. Listen, he sends more prophets to them in their captivity. They're wallowing in the consequences, the, the temporal consequences of their sin. And God, in loving grace, sends more prophets to them. Israel and Judah are, are slaves, but they're not forsaken. Did you hear that? They're not forsaken. They haven't been abandoned. God begins sending men to show them the way home. What? He's going to show them how to get back where they belong. Ezekiel, Daniel, Obadiah, Haggai, Zechariah bring encouragement, telling God's children to go home. Each of them, a solitary man with a message of hope and encouragement. Advising them to learn from their past mistakes. Don't keep going around that mountain. Maybe these 70 years in Babylon will give you a different perspective on things. They give them a path back to freedom and a way to resume godly lives despite their weaknesses and failings. Notice that? Not telling them to come back and be perfect. Just tell them to come back and experience the grace of God. Prophets are gifts of God. And you know what? They're not just gifts of God. They're signs of God's forgiveness, aren't they? Signs of God's love for his children. But as they, as they work, and the prophets work through pagan leaders, right? Cyrus, 
good guy. He helped everybody out, but there's no evidence that Cyrus was a believer. So they work through pagan leaders and ungodly government. We also see God's complete sovereignty, don't we? Just as we do in the book of Esther, a, a book that never even mentions God throughout the entire book, but reveals his influence, his wisdom, and his omnipresence among people who have not made a profession of faith. Eventually, and, and what we need to see from this is that eventually God will reveal himself to everybody. For some people, it's going to be too late. But we find out that God is the God of everyone, not just the people that believe in him. You can't reject God and then hold yourself apart from the consequences of violating his commandments. He's your God whether you believe in him or not. What a scary moment that'll be for some folks. I thought I had written you off. Yeah, you did. But not now. God is the God of everyone, whether they like him or not. Now, the Old Testament ends with Malachi. And for all intents and purposes, it's another warning and a reunited, albeit considerably smaller Israel has come back to Judah. They have rebuilt Jerusalem. The northern tribes are scattered. Some of them have come back, but I mean, it's, they're, they're, they're a shadow of what they once were. But Judah is intact. They're healthy. It's written during prosperous times, so the warning comes. You know, you can see everybody reading Micah going, what's he talking about? Things are going really well. Look, you know, the world is coming to our doorstep is, is, to trade with us, and, and we're all doing well. And Micah pipes up and goes, but you're not doing godly. So Malachi portrays this figurative, metaphorical dialogue between God and his people. And the outlook is not good. They're, they're, they're failing again. And once again, judgment is coming, but Malachi ends with this two-edged promise. The Old Testament ends with this two-edged promise. Let me listen to what he says in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now everybody thought Elijah was coming back, didn't they? The Elijah the prophet he's talking about will be John the Baptist before the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a degree of utter destruction. So God speaks to these failures. He speaks to these people who never seem to get things right. He speaks to these people who always somehow have the ball in their hand and drop it at that crucial moment. And he says, I'm sending another solitary man, one who will bring healing, only one who will bring eternal healing. One who will bring restoration. And those that refuse to follow, those that refuse to listen, will be destroyed. Well, right after that, God goes silent. Huh? <laughs> and it's not just for a while. It's for over 400 years. 
no prophet, no word of God, no scripture. If you take a look at uh, uh, the Apocrypha, uh, the book of Maccabees, when they go in to restore the temple, they can't put the altar together because Maccabees, which is good historically, maybe not so good theologically, uh, but a good historical record of what happened. They said they could not put the altar together because there was no prophet in Israel. Silent for 400 years. And what we're going to learn tomorrow morning is that God may have been silent, but he's still God. Still on the throne. Still working out his plan still moving towards the redemption of mankind for his glory, still sovereign, still in control. So, so look what we've learned this morning about God's story in the Old Testament. Look what we learned from all these events leading up to that silent night in Bethlehem. These are the lessons and, and, and you, you have to see them for how they set the stage for the coming of the Messiah, for the incarnation. Here they are. There was a redemption plan from the beginning. Really, from before the foundation of the earth. If you look at Revelation 13, you'll see that the lamb was slain from before the foundation of the earth. So the redemption plan precedes creation. We see that God chooses his people. He gives us the law, but we see that no one can live up to the law. We see that blood has to be shed for the atonement of sins. We see that God can only be approached one way, and that man doesn't get to make it up. He doesn't get to decide how he's going to go into the presence of God. We see that there are blessings for obedience. There are curses for disobedience. Now, yeah, that will have practical uh, application on our day-to-day -day lives, but it has eternal consequences as well, doesn't it? You need to think about that. Either you come to Jesus Christ or you suffer the ultimate curse. Eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. We see that those who oppose God meet a bloody end. We see that when his people cry out, God sends a deliverer. We see that what saves is not ethnicity or heritage or later on in the New Testament we find out it's not works. It's a personal relationship. We see that atonement will occur on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. We see that a disciplined relationship is vital to experiencing the full blessing of God. We see that God is infinitely patient and full of grace. We see that the darkest hours in our history are not the end. That God continues to move. And we see that God moves in, in practical ways. He gives us practical ways to live lives that honor Him. We see that a righteous man can suffer. We see that a man should accept trials from God as well as good even later, to be thankful for them. We see that God's goodness triumphs just, not just in the end, but in our lives. We see that God is omnipotent and has a sovereign plan. 
We see that he will not leave us to our own devices, but that God will guide us. He'll tell us how to live. And we see that God sends prophets. They, they, they warn against turning away from God. They speak of captivity and suffering uh, for those that do. They speak of a time of grace beyond captivity, that the captivity is not eternal, uh, that all prophets point towards the Messiah, and that all prophets are a gift of grace. And we see that the appropriate response to sin is repentance. We see that God never forsakes or abandons his children. They're never alone, despite of how they may feel. They're never on their own. They say, we see that God gives his children a path to freedom. And that he reveals his influence, wisdom, and omnipresence to everyone. That he's everyone's God. And maybe primarily we see that God redeems and delivers through one solitary man. And those who listen to him will be blessed. And those who don't will be destroyed. Great. Amen? So what? How does that impact me today, John? I'm not having a good holiday season. I've suffered loss this year. I've had setbacks. I want to be happy. Just struggling right now. So God showed all this stuff to Israel 4,000 years ago. How does it affect me? You know what? For you, God has had a plan from the beginning. From not just before you were created, but before the earth was created. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, check this out. If you feel a tugging right now in your heart to come to him, that's not you, brothers and sisters. That's God choosing you. Because God chooses his people, amen? amen? He didn't go up to Abraham and say, Abraham, I've got some options for you. Don't worry if you don't do this, I'll find somebody else. Think about it. The bus is awake. He says to Abraham, you will be the father of nations. God chose you. Huh? Blood has been shed for the remission of your sins. And you know what? God chose you, and he knew that you would sin. He chose you in spite of the fact that you would sin. Definition of grace. We see that there are blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Now, for us as believers, there's no condemnation, but that does have worldly consequences for us. If we obey Him, life is going to be better, not carefree, just easier to manage. If we disobey Him, we're going to struggle even worse than we do. We see that when His people cry out, when you cry out, God sends a deliverer. Huh. When you repent, God delivers. We see what saves are, are, are not the things you do. Not, it's the personal relationship you have with this baby 
that we're about to celebrate tonight and tomorrow. It's easy to write Jesus off as a concept, especially this time of year. He's a baby. He's a person. I mean, he did everything babies do. He, he grew up. He ate. He drank. He, he grew strong. He, he's a person. We see that God is infinitely patient and full of grace. And I think we all need to take that home today and understand that in spite of our weaknesses, like David, like Abram, like Noah, God still sheds his grace upon us, not because we're so fantastic, but because he's so awesome. We see that a righteous man can suffer. And that same righteous man should accept trials from God as well as from good. I'm not telling you to feel thankful in the middle of a trial. I'm telling you to give thanks in the middle of a trial. Maybe you don't thank for the trial. You thank God for who he is and how he moves among you. We see that God's goodness triumphs not just in the end times, but in our lives. And that may be something we have to accept as well. And we could say, I don't think I feel very victorious right now. God says you are. God says you are. Whether or not you're victorious is not dependent on how you feel. Think about lamentations. Lamentations is uttered when they're in captivity. And it turns them back to God. They're victorious in the middle of their own grief. We see that the appropriate response to sin is repentance. If you find yourself in a position where you're not trusting God, if you find yourself in a position where you're upset with Him, where you're angry with Him. David got angry with God all the time, didn't he? You watch every time in the Psalms where David gets angry, he repents by the end of the psalm. The appropriate response to sin is repentance. Don't carry the sin around. Don't carry the guilt around. Repent. Let God relieve you of that burden. We see that God will not forsake you, will not abandon you. And that's another one that, that's not dependent on how you feel. It's not dependent on whether or not you feel spiritually vibrant or spiritually dry. It's not dependent on whether or not you feel joy or peace. It's dependent on what God says. God says, I am faithful. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Some of us may have to wait for eternity to understand the full truth of that. But we can embrace the truth of it now. We see that God has given you a path to freedom. It's in Jesus Christ. You're in Jesus Christ. Take that path. You don't have to be encumbered by what you're encumbered with. We see that God saves through a solitary man. The Jews didn't know this back in 4000 B.C., but we know now that man is Jesus Christ. Salvation is available through him alone. We see that those who listen will be blessed. So we open our ears and we listen. And finally, for you today, even as we celebrate, even when God's silent, he's listening. Even when God is silent, He's still moving in your life. You may be pouring out your heart to Him, wondering why He doesn't answer. He's still God.
He's still sovereign. His plan for you has not been upset. It hasn't been derailed. His plan for you is going perfectly, just the way he wants it to. And you know how we know that? Because 400 years after Malachi was written, to this group of failures, to this group of people that couldn't get anything right, to this people who constantly turned their back on God, who constantly dropped the ball. Is anybody that can relate to this? I can. To that people, he sends salvation. God never says, you know what? I've had it up to here. I've been as patient as anybody can be. Now I'm at the end of my patience. I'm going to go find another people. God sends salvation to his chosen people. I've said it before. If you don't see yourself in Israel, you're not getting the Old Testament. Israel's story is our story. The baby comes into Israel's life. The baby comes into our lives. If you've repented, if you've asked God for forgiveness, you've confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you have the same hope and promise that Israel had. And that's a reason to be joyous. That's a reason to celebrate. That's a reason to let that music keep playing. (laughs) Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your plan. We thank you, Father, that you permeate every book every line, every word in in the Bible, Father. We thank you that the Old Testament is more than a history book. It is a story of a living God who sits in sovereign authority over all creation. We give you praise, Father. We give you glory. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the salvation available in your Son. And we pray, Father, that it would all be done according to your honor and to your glory forever and ever. Amen.